You are listening to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Think Brick Australia represents the clay, brick and paver manufacturers of Australia. Brick by Brick, our podcast will discuss technical information and architectural case studies with special guests. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of Think Brick Australia. On today's podcast, I've often referred to this person as a gift, and he is not only a gift because of him being him, but his commentary about history, about heritage architecture is really just so deep and amazing. And every time I speak to David Brand, I learn a little bit more. Welcome, David Brand. Thank you. It's great to be here. David, where I want to go to is we want to talk about obviously bricks and some of the involvement you've had in with the industry and with architecture. But I wondered whether you could tell me a little bit about your childhood and growing up. Hmm. I grew up in a brick house, so that's a good start, <laughs> in Canberra, in an early modern house in Canberra. My parents moved there after the war. It was like early settler days there. And I had an incredibly happy childhood growing up climbing trees in paddocks around it. We were we were a block and a half from the Prime Minister's Lodge. We were absolutely central Canberra and it was paddocks. I can remember sheep oh, wow. and cattle being driven along and it was like living in a country town with diplomats and public servants and academics of, you know, really amazing group of people and kids mm. in this weird country town. And I so I had a fantastic childhood there. And then my parents were posted to Washington and I had to stay at boarding school in Australia because America was so dangerous apparently I was going to get addicted to drugs immediately the moment I went there so I went to boarding school in Melbourne and missed out on a lot of fun being there so I didn't like boarding school very much at all but I got through that oh hold on that's not my whole childhood is it but anyway that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's some of it. <laughs> David and so when did the idea of, of architecture, you've studied it, when did that sort of come to you? How how did that come well, about? Well, I've had several bursts of it because I can remember when I was six that I was going to be an architect. Really? You knew I knew at that age? I was going to be an architect when I was six. Wow. We used to make massive, quite big constructions of cities out of old bits and pieces of masonite and and offcuts and what have you. And we, we made outdoor cities and drove around them in our dinky cars and built all sorts of towns like that. And I remember designing sort of Jetsons, sort of modern skyscraper things. And and I remember I got an obsession when I was probably about 10, I suppose, with I've probably seen one of those American mag architectural digest or something with these incredible mansions in it. And I, I thought, I love this. So I started designing floor plans and of luxury bedrooms, bathrooms, en-suites, studies, libraries, but completely random and completely just this weird carpet of out of scale, no, no organisation whatsoever. And I was just in, entranced by that. I remember that. Yep. And, but then I think I just forgot about it. Okay. And then when I was thinking of what I would do at the end of school, when I didn't get into medicine because you put down medicine because you, you do, and luckily I didn't get in. And so what would I do? Well, I thought I wanted to get educated first before I made any decision on what I'd do as a career. So I did an arts degree, which I was really happy about. Mm -hmm. And that left, that left the door open for a profession sort of yes. afterwards. And I, But I ended up being a historian, working as a historian and an archivist. 
I did a history and philosophy degree. I was really happy with that. But it's, it gradually dawned on me that there were things missing in my life. In my late 20s, this is now. <laughs> talking with various architect friends and thinking I love their conversation. I love talking about, I love an aesthetic you know, dimension to life, which wasn't actually in the history department. You know, they didn't, <laughs> they didn't talk about that very much. And also I was missing a sort of a, a more scientific, practical, technical side of life too. Yeah. Even though I absolutely adored history and I still am absolutely a, you know, a historian at heart. But, you know, I, I realised that I really wanted to be in that architectural conversation about culture and society and I did a I did architecture as a mature age student. And how how was that for you? I mean, given that you'd already studied, did studying architecture that experience sort of fulfill your expectations well, or beauty and you know the thing they were that was really driving me mm. still. And so I realized that I had to become an architect. So I started architecture all over again first year architecture age 29. And where was that? Melbourne Uni. Okay. I've been at Melbourne Uni before too for my previous degree, so I spent a fair bit of my time there. And uh, it was a bit like being back at school, which I didn't love, mm-hmm. but I did love being back with all of my cohort of architecture students who were 10 years younger than me. And I sort of loved it. You know, we really got on really well. And I did really well because I was like much, well, if you can become brainy and not by genetics, but just by experience. Mm. You know, the braininess that you get from experience, mm. I had it in heaps. I was much better at doing stuff and understanding what we were doing and why and, and having a go and thinking of solutions and what have you. So I started off really well. And then all around me, all of the kids, as we went through, started sort of blossoming and becoming geniuses and, you know, sort of incredible people having started off as meek little school kids. And so, you know, I got left behind a bit by <laughs> <laughs> by the cohort, but it was fantastic fun. I really, I was so happy that I had a second bite. Yes, at academic life, you know. Was there any? I know that you sort of said some of the inspiration was from those architectural digests early on, but I just wondered later when you went to study it, were there any architects that made an impression on you that really influenced? Well, I, I knew Alan Powell, who was an architect in Melbourne, recently died through a, a friend. So I knew him all through in the 70s and had long conversations with him. He inspired me to be an architect. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's just direct. I sort of wanted to emulate him in a way. But I did know I did know a few other modern architects from Canberra and and from around that I somehow knew. There was a there, my memory of modern Canberra and the modern houses that I knew that my mum's friends had were just fantastic. That we knew people in a Seidler house. We knew people in another. There's another unknown architect who was a migrant architect, completely unknown now, who just did equally good. Marcel Breuer inspired houses. Marcel Breuer was a great American modernist. I just knew we knew lots of people in great modern houses, and so I was. I really was addicted to. We were. My mum was interested in art. We went around to art galleries all the time. Mm. Canberra is such a modern place and so I was really sort of imbued with that all the way. Mm. And David, when you finished studying, what did you do then with the degree now that you were... Well, I never really finished studying, I don't think. So I've got two degrees that sort of sit there in my CV. I've, I've never really left university because after a few years, after I finished my architecture degree, I started tutoring there as a sort of just a, a part-time thing. And that would have been in the mid-90s. I was tutoring in architectural history because mm-hmm. I've got this sort of history thing. And that it combines beautifully with architecture, I tell you. 
And I've been sort of tutoring at university on and off for the last 25 years, doing you know a lot of it in architectural history, but architectural theory, and also running design studios, postgraduate design studios at architectural design. I somehow qualified for that, and they keep on asking me back, and that's really fantastic. So I've got a whole teaching career, mm. only at a casual level. I didn't want to sign up for a proper career, <laughs> and uh, which I really love. I just love teaching probably more than anything else. I certainly love, I love teaching more than, I te- love teaching architecture more than I love doing architecture, actually. <laughs> well, just on that point, I thought I'd share with our listeners how we came to meet. And it was through Oof's entry into the Think Brick Awards with the Hello House. And I remember, obviously, the first contact was Fui, but then we invited Fui to come and speak at something. And we got a question about heritage and you piped up and jumped up on stage and it was wonderful. And that's why I've said ever since you've been this wonderful gift that we've had. And and from then, and, and we still haven't forgotten the dream of doing some brick tours around the world, but one, a couple of years in a row, you've done some walking tours around Richmond for us, pointing out some of the, the brick entries and some of the heritage brick in the area. What is it that you, what draws you to brick? Well, architecture draws me to brick. I, to me, you know, I'm not especially a brick advocate. I'm an advocate for bricks wherever it is, you know, the right thing to use. And the story of architecture, I just think, is the most fantastic thing. Mm. It's it's my window into the world of the great story of civilization and people on earth and what have you. And there are many, many, many other ways into that. But I just love, I love thinking about the story of architecture, telling it, exploring it, doing it. So looking at bricks is just like, there's just, there's no way around it. If you're talking about architecture, bricks have been a part of architecture since the year dot. You know, you can go back to Babylon and no doubt for, you know, millennia before Babylon, but the bricks have been used in architecture and they've been used in every phase of architecture, whether it's classical architecture, you know, the Romans used bricks, there's Gothic architecture, every, all the parts of Europe that were in floodplains and not in rocky, you know, sort of mountainous areas use bricks. Modern architecture, despite it being fundamentally, the, you know, the huge revolution in modern architecture was reinforced concrete and steel and glass, but they also use brick. So mm. brick has been used in every phase of architecture all over the world in every single way. It's a fundamental part of the story. Mm-hmm. So there's always something to talk about. There's always something to say, what's been done with it, how it was managed, what's the brilliant work that you can see, just the, you know, sort of really just amazing technical things about brick in different ways and different times. There's always a story to tell about it. And David, what have you noticed? I mean, let, let's maybe just narrow it down in terms of history, but just even over the last decade, how have you noticed that brick in architectural design has changed? Well, I think... Brick, like all materials and all sort of styles of architecture, come and go. At different times, they're a bit on the nose, they're a bit daggy or a bit... I think, you know, Australia in the brick veneer era from after the Second World War just built so much brick, but it was there waiting to be rediscovered. And you only have to look at just fantastic examples of where brick has been used so, so richly and so amazingly and brilliantly and impressively that you know, at, at some point, people came back to it and started discovering it. I, I, it's probably been, I can't even put a finger, I can't pinpoint when people started getting interested in it again, but it would have been probably in the, in the 90s and then certainly in the 2000s. And, and since then, people now, people just love finding as many different ways to use brick as they can. 
and they're fantastic, uh, just you know, fantastic little experiments. They're usually experiments which have been done before in the 70s or the 60s. Yeah. You know, rediscovering how modernism used bricks in the most fantastic ways, and uh, and having a go at it again, and and maybe even discovering how Romans used bricks and having a go at that again. But it's been quite a flourishing period, I would say, the last 20 years. And just if I take you back more to your heritage, as if I take you back to your heritage period, is there a famous or favourite brick building? London is full of the most incredible brick buildings of the late 19th, early 20th century with just carved brickwork. As I don't know, I don't exactly understand how they carve it so beautifully, but carved brickwork is just stupendous. And they, they, I think they probably inherited it from from Holland, which was sort of ahead of the game on using bricks, probably. So there's a whole range of work which is just stupendous. Mm. But also in London, the use of brick in not so much in architecture as, as in engineering, I mean, they sort of bleed into each other, but uh, the brick structures of London are just awesome. The, the, the railways, the tunnels, the sewers, the embankments, awesome, awesome majestic brick structures everywhere. I remember probably my favourite brick space would have to be, I remember in the 80s, and I think it's still going now, there was a nightclub called Heaven <laughs> in Charing Cross in the middle of London, and it was built under one of the railway viaducts. And those railway viaducts were just made out of giant, absolutely giant brick vaults, you know, just a huge, wide arch. And then this massive nightclub just pumping away underneath, nothing but the big, just a brick sky brick. above. Just sensational, you know, so much complexity and so much simplicity above you. It's just fantastic. So, you know, there's that sort of awesome, the engineering structures, I think, are, are really exciting. Not just the nicely fancy carved things, which I think are also mm. bloody amazing. But it's, yeah, I mean, brick is used brilliantly in engineering, brilliantly in architecture, and that merges into a whole story there, which is great. Just because of your history and your experience in architecture and and heritage, what do you think is one thing that people wouldn't know about architecture from a historical sense? I think in, in looking at architecture is that architecture is fundamentally about structure and they think that architecture is fundamentally about style. And so, and you see this the way that students design. We try to teach them not to do this, but this is what they sort of do. They're all incredibly adept at computers and they mm-hmm. can and they can build any shape, size, you know, spaces, angles, walls, whatever they do, they just do what they think is a really cool looking shape or building mm-hmm. or whatever layout. Then they decide what it's going to look like and they say, well will you have the brick look or the steel look or the timber look? And they decide on one and they sort of pretty much wallpaper whatever whatever the shape and size of the building is that they've done. So mm-hmm. they just sort of apply this style and think that looks really great. It's, you know, really bricky or it's really timbery or whatever. They don't realise that architecture is not, it doesn't work like that. It, it, it has to be, if it's a building at all, it has to be a, a brick building or a timber building or a steel mm. building. And that is actually what determines the shape and the size of timber buildings or brick buildings, holding buildings up except building arches. That's what people don't realise and they still into being and it is because of the structural necessities. I love that. And that's, thank you, that's a great answer as well. And you're absolutely right. 
David, just sort of we talked a little bit about your your teaching and, and obviously you've moved into other aspects of planning. Tell me a little bit about that side of what you do. Well, I got because I had sort of history and architecture together in my sort of education, I I worked for a firm that did heritage studies for municipalities, for cities. And I did one, I worked on one for a long time on the city of St Kilda when it was a city of its own. And, and it was a 20th century study of 20th century architecture in St Kilda to basically as a heritage review, a heritage report. Mm-hmm. And I lived in St Kilda. I had moved to St Kilda, which was this bohemian wonderland. And so I really knew it very well and I loved it. And But I wasn't interested, I wasn't involved in local politics or anything until a developer bought the Esplanade Hotel, which is actually where we're sitting doing this yes. podcast, and decided to turn it into a 38-storey apartment tower, maybe with a little garden ornament at the front, which would be the front of the Espy Hotel or something. Mm-hmm. And we sort of thought, this is really terrible because the Espy was the home of rock and roll. It was the incubator of sort of, of indie punk culture and we needed to stop them. So I got quite involved and I got very involved in the fight for the Esplanade Hotel and I was sort of the campaign's sp- spokesman and organiser on architecture and architectural history, the, that side of the heritage, that sort of side of fighting to save the building. And uh, that was a pretty successful campaign and in the end it got very famous mm-hmm. and I was sort of pushed to the front and uh, said stand for council. So I stood for council, I got elected and on and off over the next 25 years I've spent half of my life on as a city councillor here in the city of Port Phillip. So this is me as a sort of a, a bridge from architecture but also a bridge from popular culture mm. and, and underground culture or whatever it is into planning and council policy and all that sort of thing. And it, it, I would like to just explore that because we, we do speak to a lot of councils and what is it that sort of comes up? Obviously, you're coming, obviously your work was really being passionate about buildings and, and that sense of retaining culture and, and the space. What is it that councils have to really look at currently with regards to their particular areas? Well, I mean, I know that's a big question. Oh, yeah, well, I'm just trying to think of, I mean, there's so many angles. Yes. Look, heritage is a really, is, is a really important part, especially of the inner, inner city mm. councils like the city of Port Phillip is in, in Melbourne. And I feel an, an incredible sort of, my really deepest allegiance, I think, is to inner, inner Melbourne mm-hmm. and by example with, you know, all the inner parts of, of our cities, the Victorian mm parts that have this sort of incredible density and it's and, and so much of it has survived. Councils are usually full of people who are either there because they're into social justice or because they're into real estate development and business. And there are very few people who are there specifically because of sort of heritage and urban culture mm. and, and and sort of historical count you know, that sort of history, culture heritage, architecture, sort of conglomeration of life, parts mm. of life. So I had a, I was a bit, little bit unusual being an architect in politics, but I really wanted the city to, that was my project, to get the city to take it seriously. And unfortunately, I think over the period of my time there, it has gradually left taken it less and less seriously, probably. And now it's, it almost feels like there, it's almost just a bit of a sidetrack, mm. which I find really upsetting because I think that you know, the area that I'm talking about, I know it's fundamental that we have environmental concerns. 
I mean, that's fundamental to get that right. It's fundamental that we have justice and fairness. It's fundamental that we have good management, you know, fiscal management and responsibility and what have you. They're all absolute essentials. But what we really live for is is beauty and culture and values, you know, whether it's sporting or religious or they're all they're all part of the cultural mm. mix these are the things that we really live for these are the things that we debate about hardest and quite often when we're debating about the other essentials we're talking about them in an almost religious or almost well you know, it's just it's it's an all-encompassing sort of thing about culture mm-hmm. and it gets played out in the culture wars and what have you so I sort of I'm very much I sort of I just don't think council sort of sees life through a, a prism of culture and history and values as it does through a more practical or a more straight ethical thing. And I'm, I look, I guess I spend all my time looking through that prism and saying how it looks to me through that. And uh, so what do you think? You know, we've got to do it this way. You, Or you're deluding yourself or, mm. or you've completely lost the plot or you don't understand what people are really motivated for by or whatever. You know, I'm just sort of an advocate from a slightly different angle like that. I, I think it's an essential part of life. I think, in fact, it is. It's what defines us as what we really, really... We did lose a, a very important block of Spanish mission flats behind the on the, it was on the property before, where the tower is now. But I sort of figure we had a 75% win there. And the, the, the tower block, which is built on... T- the apartment block, which is built on top of the ESPY, or sort of just behind it, is um, pretty well designed. It's a pretty good-looking building. It's 10 storeys tall, not 38. It fits into the area pretty well. Care about. And during that time when you were the councillor, was there... A particular outside of the Esplanade, obviously saving the hotel, was there a particular issue or that you're very proud of the result? We're pretty proud of the the hotel result. Yes, we did. That was, I think, a, quite a good victory. Even though I mourn certain parts of it, but I think it was. They're just look. The victories after that were for me. Either there was a really big issue about what's called the Triangle Site, which is a, which was a huge development that ended up sort of going going down. It didn't didn't work, which I put a lot of effort into, and I thought the result was almost fantastic. Of it, just it couldn't be, it wasn't acceptable. So that was something which which was a huge achievement on paper, mm. which in the end just couldn't happen because of certain conditions. And I probably haven't had a bigger victory than that, but I've had lots of small victories of mm. saving. I can go around the city and say, yeah, that you know that roof there is that roof line is there because you know that's. Brought it to people's attention, or fought a little battle over that, or got people conscious about this, or whatever. So I sort of feel like the Katani Gardens. Yeah. I think before before, which is if you haven't been there, it's this beautiful sort of Mediterranean style, it's, you know, masses of palm trees and curvy paths and lava rock walls and what have you. People thought it was because it wasn't you know sort of indigenous species that mm. it just had to be cleared. And turn back into nature. Mm. They didn't quite realise what its significance was. It was like a really important step in our in the development of our national identity as a Mediterranean climate place rather than a northern European climate place. There's a whole lot of things. And the sort of just just standing up for the things that we were about to trash. Mm. 
It's really been my, my, my main obsession and my main interest, really. And David, you obviously commentate on a lot of architects and being that bridge. Where do you see the role for architects in what's going on at the moment with climate change and, and planning? How do you see architects in their role? Well, it, it's fundamental. One of the main features of human life is buildings. Mm. One of the main products, one of the main essentials that we have, and architects design buildings. So, I mean, really, there's a huge territory there for, you know, for everything that needs to happen for us, for civilization, basically, to keep on surviving and not plummeting into a, a long, drawn-out sort of dark age of disaster. What's the most important thing that you think the world needs to focus on or well that i mean there's no question this is the this is the biggest issue mm. for us on on earth at the moment and architects have a clear responsibility and i would say that all all architects all students all architects have a, a strong sense of moral obligation to be doing the right thing and some of them you know a lot of people just do what they have to do mm. a lot of people are actually exploring and researching and pioneering you know, things to do with buildings and how it can be done better. I, I don't know any, I don't really know any architects that, that, are, that are climate deniers. It's, it's not mm. a, it doesn't seem to me to be a branch of architecture that goes over into that side like there are in so many other yes. parts of other industries. I think architects have almost universally adopted that moral challenge. Mm. I'm, not, I'm not especially interested in it as, as part of architecture Myself, but I'm just interested in cultural things and hist- historical things. But there's no, there's no question that this is the biggest issue of all. Mm. Do you think architects get the profile and the voice that they deserve? I think that what architects do actually does have quite a big impact because I'm not going to use the word trends because I just hate the word trends. They set agendas and they like and they come up with alternative ways of seeing or doing that that sink in and if you can you can look at the most advanced thinking and their most advanced issues and mm. and history and all sorts of styles and all sorts of things that architects get obsessed with and in, in at the at the serious in-house level if you know sort of post-grad architects and new young architects become obsessed with things and about I reckon it's about 20 years later it's popular culture but it takes 20 or 25 years for things to, to sink into the point that everybody's got to have it and everybody does it without even thinking. David, I love that architect set agendas. I think that's fabulous. And as always, every discussion that we have, I always learn something new. So thank you for this time. And also thank you for everything you've done for the brick industry and, and me personally over the years. We do have some rapid fire questions oh, that right. I am going to, to ask you. Okay. All answers are acceptable. Let me just get them. Can't say pass. Can't say pass. Reading the news, a newspaper or online? I still get the newspaper delivered a bit, but I've got to say I read it online much more. Okay. I'm a really slow typer and the only way I can possibly get my thoughts down on paper is by writing it out in hand. I can write pretty fast. And then I then I have to translate it into typing, and that just takes me forever. <laughs> For sketching ideas or concepts, would you use a pencil, pen, or e-pen? Well, I sort of revere the pencil, but mm. I generally use a pen, and I like explaining things to people with a pen, you know, yes. on, just on paper, and 
diagramming stuff and and doing you know absolutely rapid sketches of, of buildings or places or you know whatever that are really I think it's really important. Do you like to read books or listen to audio books? Well, I, I revere reading, I re, but I but I listen to a lot more. I don't. I don't. I I do audio books a bit, but I yeah. just I I listen to people talking a lot. What is important to you, style or substance? Well, I think this is a false dichotomy. I think it is absolutely all about how they go together. Mm. Style without style without substance is possible, but pretty vapid or very very weird. And substance without style is, in a, in a sense, substance without style is like engineering. Mm-hmm. So you can have plenty of substance without style, but you can't. But style without substance is, yeah. Coffee or tea? I'm a tea person. TV shows or movies? I watch TV. Antique or modern? Well, you see, I like antique modern. Mm. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I like I like modern. Okay. I, like, I really like modern stuff, but I, I love antiques. I'm a very antique I'm a very, are you going to ask past history or something like that no. at some point? No, anyway, I, I really, I really love history and I'm, so I love antiques, but I, but the antiques that I probably like the best are actually of the modern era. Call or text? I'm a little bit shy, so I like texting. Travel back in time or into the future? Well, you know, I'm, I'm desperate, desperate to stay alive as long as I can. You know, I'm, I always... <laughs> I'm happy to be a brain in a jar just as long as I can see what's happening. Uh, But I think life is just so incredibly complex. And in the past, the complexity has all has happened. So you go back in the past and it's a rich area. When When you think of the future, it's a very shallow imagination that we have of it. And I'm very happy to, I'd be very happy to time travel back into the past but but either way I'm happy to get out of the present very happy (laughs) exterior or interior don't care I think well actually you know I do care because I think I'm I think the level of motivation that I'm on is probably the you know architecture is probably the level of the city yes and how architecture contributes to the city so I would have to say that's a special that's more an exterior thing than an interior but you know the interiors and the exteriors are all part of the same deal Video games or board games? Oh, I, I play with either. I don't care much. I'm a bit addicted to some video games, I've got to say. Form or function? Another false dichotomy. they just got to <laughs> go together. They, it's it's the relationship is what counts. I mean, you can't... And I think I know what your answer is going to be to the next one, complex or simple with relation to design. Right. Well, reality is complex. Reality is more complex than you can anybody can possibly imagine. And the only way the only way that we can deal with it is to simplify, is to oversimplify. Is every and every simplification is a falsification. So we're we're bound. Every time you simplify something, it's going to be at least partly wrong, but it might capture something special. And that's what design is. It's like taking a problem and trying to wrap it up in some with some sort of solution. It's like tr- it's trying to hit the mark with a simple concept or idea that does an enormous amount of work. It's never going to do all the work that's necessary, but you can't. The whole thing of design is simplification, simplifying the issue and coming with a solution that that deals with that. So, design is about simplification. Reality is about complexity, and it's the it's the relationship between the two that is the fantastic thing. David Brand, I've enjoyed every minute of this. Thank you for joining us. Well, my pleasure. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow 
rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for new ways to think brick. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.